version here. You have your own translation and a place in there you can ask us questions if you want to do that. Make sure you put your name on that, though, so we can know who to answer uh, your nice little questions for. And for the rest of you, you can take out your scriptures or you can take out your smartphones and open up your app or use your bulletin. We're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 17. We're working our way during these transition uh, sermons for the month of July. Um, we're working our way through this middle section of Luke's gospel. We're going to be in uh, verses 1 through 17 of Luke chapter 9. This is God's word. And he called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and heavenly Father, as we come before your word, we do ask that you would once again open your scriptures up to us, Lord. Give us truth for our growth and for our transformation. May we encounter your word by your Holy Spirit, Father. Speak to us through, perhaps even in spite of the messenger this morning. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So why is this church here? Not why is any church, but why is this church here right now? What is this church about in the community of Orangeburg? You know, a time of pastoral transition is a great time to ask those kind of questions. Or more broadly, maybe, you can ask it this way. What does Jesus really want this church to do? See, this text today provides a pretty clear answer. Jesus gathers his 12 interns, and 
He sends them out on a short-term mission trip, and he tells them what he thinks is important. He begins this trip by giving them his power and his authority. And when we read this passage, kind of just without any context, those are kind of ethereal concepts. Oh yeah, Jesus' power and authority. But Luke puts this right after chapter 8, an entire chapter where we have seen tangible examples of Jesus' power and authority. He healed the synagogue leader's daughter. He even brought her back to life. He healed the Gerasene demoniac of all those demons. He calmed a storm. That's the power. That's the authority. And that is what he gives his interns on their first solo flight. He commissions them with a very specific mission. Don't just read over this. Look with me at verse 2. How specific is this? He tells them he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So to proclaim and to heal. Don't separate those. Especially those of us in white Protestantism, we're very comfortable with one side of those or the other. There's people who have these great healing ministries, and it's just kind of a stereotype. They're weak on the proclamation. There's others who are really strong on proclamation, and they're all like, uh, healing? Um, you got a slide rule for that? What do you mean? Right? So we got to put the, keep these together because Jesus keeps them together. Proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel is ministry. So they're sent out as an extension of Jesus' own ministry. Jesus' disciples are to share his message and demonstrate his message. And then also, while, he, while they're on this trip, he gives them some really weird commands. Did you pick up on that? Travel really light. Don't take a bunch of supplies. Don't stay in one place too long. When, not if, you get rejected, just you know, shake it off. Don't dwell on it. Move on. Now, this was a specific instruction for a specific ministry trip. Don't think, okay, if you're going to do missions, you can't prepare. you got to just go out on faith, because on another missions trip, Jesus tells them, take some supplies, oh, and take a sword. So, you know, you have to, context matters. So, what's doing, what's going on here? Is Jesus anti-preparation? What is this? Well, there's, there's this kind of parable, or maybe it's a, an aphorism, a saying you hear. It's called, learn, do, and then teach. And what most of us do is, we experience something new. And wow, this is really neat. And what do we want to do immediately? We want to skip the do, and we want to go teach about it, right? And Jesus is like, no, no, no. I want you to learn, and I do want you to teach, but there's a step there in the middle about trusting God. I want you to learn about trusting God. I want you to experience trusting God, and then I want you to teach trusting God. I mean, how on earth are these disciples going to go out and proclaim God's faithfulness in all things unless they are experiencing that faithfulness in all things? So Jesus sets them up. All right, you're going to have to go out and trust God before you tell other people to trust God. That's what's going on here. They have to live in the faith that they're calling people to. Which is exactly what Jesus still calls his church to today. We are a community commissioned to proclaim and to demonstrate the message of the grace of Jesus Christ. And often it will be challenging. And often we will experience different kinds of rejection. Now when we hear that as a church, when we hear... It's not going to be easy. You might experience rejection. We have one of two reactions. I was trying to think how I could best describe this, so I thought, you know what? A picture's worth a thousand words, so I'm going to show you a picture. Here's our two reactions. 
when we think of persecution or perhaps rejection, okay? We got Eeyore on the left, and we got Tigger on the right. Now, in case you don't know who these characters are, I'm sorry. I'll do the best I can. Eeyore is very much the glass is half empty, shattered, broken, and you cut yourself on it. Okay, he is the pessimist pessimist. Tigger is, the glass is half full, there's a million glasses. In fact, I want more glasses. Tigger is the exact opposite. So here's what happens. Are we an Eeyore church? Well, Jesus wants us to go and get rejected and make fools of ourselves. Or are we a Tigger church? Woohoo! What a great promise! God's going to be with us. Let's go! See? Jesus calls his disciples, I'm going to show my cards here, to be tiggers. Go mess stuff up. See what happens. You see, an Eeyore church really hasn't gotten the promise of grace down in its bones. It knows the information. It can answer the trivia question. But it hasn't really experienced that grace. And so it assumes that, you know, such a mission, what Jesus wants us to do, well, it must be about having really good programs, or it must be about making what we do inside the building really attractive so those people out there will want to come in here. But the Tigger Church has tasted the gospel. The Tigger Church, so excited by the gospel, it cannot wait to leave here and go out there where the people are. See, we don't have to be pretty. We don't have to have all the stuff. We don't have to have the big budgets. We simply have to go and proclaim and get involved. And maybe it sounds something along the lines of like, I don't know, um, building God's church and blessing our community might be a different way to put it. That's a Tigger church. What we hear here is so amazing. Let's go! And that's what these 12 do. They go and just mess up this entire area with the gospel. And it's fantastic. They make a splash. Everybody's talking about it. They get invited on Kimmel. Oprah wants to see them. And then the government hears about it too. Isn't it interesting that when a group of people start really committing to evangelism, to proclamation, to demonstration of the gospel, it's Jesus and not themselves that starts to get talked about and get notoriety. So when we read this text, we have to ask ourselves, dear flock, are we touching people's lives in such a way that it leaves them deeply impressed with Jesus? What do people say about Trinity? Oh, it's such a friendly church. I've heard that. That's good. I like that. Oh, your people there are so nice. That's kind of redundant, but thanks. Okay. I really sense the presence and the power of Jesus in the gospel at your church. So these interns go out, and they just mess up this region, pointing people to Jesus. So much so that it brings, again, the government's attention, which is rarely good. And once the man notices you, things tend to get complicated. That little blurb there in verse 9 about Herod sought to see him is not a good thing. And so in verse 10, after the trip, Jesus kind of gets out of dodge, so to speak. He wants to get away from Herod. Let's lay low for a little bit. Let's just calm down and decompress. Let's do an after-action review of your mission trip. I want to hear all about it. And notice how well Jesus' plans go. Look at me at verse 11. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. 
Jesus had these plans to get away, and notice how he treated all these people who interrupted his plans. I love that. Doesn't that help you see the heart of God? This uninvited intrusion into Jesus' me time meets with no rebuff from Jesus. See, Jesus came to lay his life down for his people. And so he gladly ministers to them when they come to him. Is that how you see Jesus? Can you come to him freely? Or do you still sense that somehow you have to earn it? You got to clean your act up and then you come. Do we make others feel like somehow they have to earn this intrusion into Jesus' time, that Jesus isn't willing and right there? No, you got to do some stuff first, or, or at least qualify for grace. Can you please just you know, stop saying those words, or can you please dress this way? Can you get your act together? Do we give off that vibe? Or are we come to Jesus when you're as ugly and messed up as I am, and he'll receive you? See, this text shows us that Jesus longs to be gracious. And so this crowd comes to him. And why was this crowd coming out to Jesus in throngs like this, to such a desolate place? Why? Because the gospel that they heard about and saw about is that amazing. They wanted more. Everything these people thought they knew about God, the whole synagogue system, all that stuff that had taught them, Follow a bunch of rules, jump through these hoops. If you do this, God will love you and favor you. Jesus said, all that's wrong. God loves you because of me. God loves you because he loves you. God has a plan for you and he can fix all this stuff. You don't have to jump through the hoops. Just confess you can't. What an amazing, they want more of that. They want more of that grace, more of that freedom that Jesus offers. And so they come. And the sense of the text really is they kind of dropped what they were doing and found out Jesus is talking over there. Let's go. Completely unprepared for a, an outing in the country, so to speak. Jesus welcomes them. Jesus teaches them. He heals them. He does exactly what he told his disciples to do in verse 2. He demonstrates the reality of the grace that he teaches. And as the day goes on in their haste to see Jesus, it kind of comes back to bite them and they're hungry and they're going to need food. Now, you and I don't like to miss a meal. I get that, right? Clearly, I get that. This is different. We have to remember that most of human history, most people lived on subsistence rations only. Missing a meal was a big deal. People lived most of the time on the edge of starvation. We talk about income inequality and how the other 1% lives. Okay, it was like the top 1.0% maybe had food. Everybody else lived on subsistence rations. So this is not just an inconvenience. People could get very ill, even faint, perhaps even die. And so the disciples, they come to Jesus, and usually they get a bad rap at this point. They're not saying, hey, will you get rid of this rabble so we can eat? No, Jesus has been caught up in the momentum of the day. They've been with him for a while. They understand how he works. Jesus has lost track of time again. So they come pointing out a problem, offering a solution. But instead of taking their proposal, he shocks them. Look with me at verse 13. This would have shocked them. He said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we're going to go buy food for all these people. 
See, the emphasis here is on the disciples' actions, and they don't understand. Like, um, Jesus, we got like two filet of fish sandwiches here and a couple stale buns. What? 5,000 people? And we know the story, right? Jesus has them sit down, holds the world's most famous picnic. But here's the question. Why did Jesus tell them to do something about this? Why did he say, you do it, if he was going to do it himself anyway? Why did he do that? The hint is, I think, the fact that verses 1 through 17 are one unit. Don't separate them out. Here's what I mean. God had provided for these interns on their journey, right? Jesus said, don't take a lot of extra food, don't take a lot of extra money, right? You have to go trust God. And God provided. They should have expected God to have provided here. I mean, had they, had, they traveled without provisions. They've been provided for. God provided for the disciples through strangers. Why can't the disciples now provide for strangers through God? But the second thing, and here's the bigger deal. The disciples still had the power and authority from verse 1. Why did they assume there was nothing they could do about it? That's the real question. See, Jesus looking at them in verse 13, according to Jesus, he's like, um, I've given you power and authority for ministry, and feeding hungry people is ministry. It's not nearly as exciting as healing the sick, I know. It's not nearly as exciting as an itinerant preaching ministry, I know. But see, it, the text shows us it never crossed the disciples' mind that they were even called to feed these people. They immediately came, we've got to to get rid of these people so they can go eat. They sort of just assumed they couldn't do it or it wasn't part of their mission. You know, you and I overlook ministry opportunities all the time because we assume that we can't or we're not called to help in certain situations. See, hear this, disciples of Christ, from this text. We are to proclaim and to demonstrate. We are to build God's church and bless the community. You see, we understand if we've gotten the gospel, if we're a Tigger church with the gospels down in our very marrow, we get that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the guarantee that a better world is coming. So Christianity is involved in the world here and now. Hunger and need are not supposed to be, and they won't be in that world. And so when Jesus sees hunger and need, he looks at his disciples and says, fix it. See, the proclamation of the gospel is absolutely words, but it's also deeds. Our denomination just recently adopted a a statement, a, a, a confessing, basically, past sins, specifically that most of the predecessor churches of our denomination have a very poor record of civil rights from the civil rights era. Now, many of those individual churches have specifically repented. Many haven't, but we thought as a denomination, we need to own that during the civil rights era, for the most part, we did nothing, was a quote from one of the founders of our denomination, what the Bible calls sins of omission, yeah, that guy's a racist, but you know, he doesn't really act on it. He can still be an elder. Yeah, we, yeah we, we, we locked the doors and wouldn't let people of a certain color come in to worship. But that was just the times, you know. See, seeing the segregation in our culture 
seeing the segregation in the hearts of their members and not speaking out because they assumed it wasn't the church's job. It wasn't that, well, we just don't care. It's like, well, that's not the church's job. The church is about spiritual change, not this social justice stuff. The church is about proclamation. Not, it's not about demonstration. See, like these disciples, the churches of that era, it wasn't that they didn't see a need. It was the assumption that the church is about the spiritual side. That it's not the church's place to do something about these tangible things. Those are social issues. We see, Jesus' reaction here confirms if the church doesn't speak up about such things, who will? See, for us now, in a different era, doing real ministry in Jesus' name means God's people, us. We're to be burdened by the sin in our world. And then we apply the power of the gospel to those things. Now again, in case you think I'm reaching, let's look together at Matthew chapter 28, verses 18. If you've been around church more than a couple minutes, you've probably seen this verse. Very famous. This is called the Great Commission. And it says this. Matthew chapter 28 says this. this All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, that's one of those verses we say so quickly. We know those things, but we miss. He starts out by saying what? All authority has been given to me. And the picture is, here you go, now you go. It's the exact same thing he did in Chapter 9, verse 1 of Luke. He takes his authority and now he gives it to all of us. Or as we would say here in the South, Jesus says, look, all y'all, because y'all is not plural by itself, all y'all are now have my power and authority. Go. Have you ever thought about that's what it means to be a Christian? We have that power. We have that authority to proclaim and demonstrate. I mean, pain disease, social disorder, depression, racism, those things are not to be, and they will not be one day, someday. And so we as the church are supposed to point to the way the world will be and work for it to be that way now through the power of the gospel. Because so often it's the gospel itself that's the only solution to those maladies. And just as these disciples were overwhelmed at the size of this crowd... We as a church can be very overwhelmed at the size of the problems out there, can't we? And we could be tempted to withdraw. Or we could be tempted to get angry. Or we could be tempted to look at things adversarially. See, but, but, but the societal and the political sickness that overwhelms us, what if it's actually ours to address? What if that's our calling, that to apply the power and authority of Jesus Christ to those things? Let me give you a good example. And please let me say this whole example before you shut off. Black lives matter. There are so many things to say. But fundamentally, it is an expression of a hunger for the world that Jesus promises. Well, there will be no injustice, no pain, no death. And so what should our response as a church, as disciples who take seriously proclamation and demonstration, what should we do? 
our response to Black Lives Matter should be a very sympathetic why. Because our culture can't answer that question. Here's what I mean. Science tends to slip into philosophy and start answering big questions. So a Darwinist, evolutionist beginning story. Whatever you want to think of the science, when that moves out of measurable things and into answering big questions of existence, that story, that creation narrative of our culture that basically says there's nothing special about humanity, we just won evolution. We get the gold medal. We're not, we're not fundamentally different. We're just higher evolved and given more times. We may have an, a, a worldwide sickness and there could be some other animal that's next in line. There's nothing unique about us whatsoever. We're just we just won the race. We got there first. Add that to materialism, not wanting more things, but a worldview that says there's nothing spiritual. The world is just what it is. So no matter what you accomplish when, in your life, when you die, you're dead. There's nothing left of you. It's over. Apply that big picture-wise, and ultimately the sun's going to explode one day. Everything humanity ever accomplished is going to burn up when the sun explodes. No one's ever going to know we existed. That's it. So take that creation story of Darwinianism, take that end story of materialism, and you put those together, and our culture says no lives matter. See, the ultimate belief of our culture cannot support why any lives matter, but Christianity can. Humans are made in the image of God. Humans possess dignity and deserve respect because God has dignity and deserves respect, and they are his image. Jesus Christ himself condescended, took on human flesh, putting his nobility into all of us. Whatever shame Adam brought, Christ undid, and now we have more nobility coursing through our veins and we don't even know what to do with. C.S. Lewis famously said that if we have never met an ordinary person, If we could see an ordinary person today as they will be one day, someday glorified through Jesus Christ, every cell in our body would scream out, bow down and worship this thing. We've never met anybody amazing because what God is going to do to humanity one day, someday is incredible. That's the dignity and worth that Christianity bestows on all human life. And so when somebody says black lives matter, instead of all the various reactions we have, just like the disciples in the huge crowd, it never crosses our mind that we have been given the resources by Jesus to speak gospel truth into that movement. Do you realize more and more, dear flock, we are surrounded by people who are not actually opposed to Christianity as much as they've heard that, no thank you, because what they have been exposed to is completely irrelevant and powerless in real life issues. See, and the question is, with our proclamation and our demonstration, are we proving these people right or wrong when they think that? All four Gospels report this miracle. And the food just keeps coming. That's the power that Jesus has. It's 5,000 men in that day and age for a, a man not to be married would be very odd. And they usually start having lots of children very quickly. So we're talking at least probably ten to 15,000 people here. And what happens? The power of Jesus, it's, it's demonstrated. What happens? Look with me at verse 17. 
they all ate and were satisfied. That's actually the word that they use for fattening up livestock. <laughs> Lots of food is involved here. See, this is a picture of ministry in the name of Jesus. God uses his people to bring Jesus' power to problems in the real world. You realize we're surrounded by people who are hurting. We're surrounded by people who are hungry for the bread that feeds the soul. Do you know why there's a horde of people in this text eager to see Jesus at this moment? Because his disciples had been all over the area talking about Jesus and demonstrating the reality of Jesus. You see, the question is, I go back to the very beginning, what are we here for? Are we a church that says we are going to point people to Jesus? Or are we like the disciples, so focused on our inabilities that we forget the power he's given us? And so we really never talk about Christ to those he brings before us. In John's account of this event, John's another gospel writer, Jesus actually explains a little bit more what's going on in this miracle. And he says the bread is actually a picture of him. That he is the bread that comes down from heaven to satisfy God's people. And no matter what the need is, he is always there. Not just to give them enough, but to satisfy, to fatten them up. You see, in Jesus Christ offering himself as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. His body is broken to pay for our sins, so we don't have to be broken to pay for our sins. His holy life earns the righteousness that we need before a holy God, and so he gladly dispenses and shares his grace with us. Jesus Christ lived the life that a holy God demands of us. He died the death that a just God demands of us in our sin. And then in being raised from the dead, he proved these things are true. And he says, you can have this indestructible life. You can be delivered from the default Christianity, of the, especially here in the South, that says, just like the synagogue system, okay, if I do these things, if I jump through these hoops, then God will love me. No, Jesus Christ did those things. And he offers grace to you and says, I will forgive you. I will make you my own. And you can come and meet my dad and he can become your dad too. That's the gospel. Is that what we're demonstrating for our community? Have we got that gospel in us? Because that's what's available to you through Jesus Christ. Grasp onto it. Eat it up. Let it satisfy you. Stuff your face with the grace of God in Jesus Christ. See, and those of you who have been satisfied by Jesus, those of you who've been changed by Jesus, take that life-giving reality out to our world. Because ultimately, Jesus' life matters. Let's pray together. Father God, Lord, we come before you and we confess, Lord, that very often we those of us who know you, who have placed our faith and trust in you, we are overwhelmed with problems in our world. And our first thought is not that the gospel has a solution. But instead, Lord, we look to political power. We look to financial power. We look to electoral power. Forgive us for neglecting to look at your power and authority that you have given to your people. 
Father God, would you help us to be doers of your word and not hearers only? Would you give us the courage and the wisdom to demonstrate as well as proclaim your gospel? And Lord, we ask that for those who are here today who do not know you, maybe, Lord, you would do your work of grace. That as you called forth Lazarus from death to life, you would call forth people to believe and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.